We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. And welcome everybody, Steve Cunningham coming at you with Father Thomas Crean and Dr. Alan Finister. You recognize definitely Dr. Alan, but Father Crean, you've probably seen a couple times in some interviews we put up. He's written a couple books like uh, uh, The Mass and the Saints and The God Delusion, which probably is, I think, is a different title in English. Well, prof- no, Professor Dawkins wrote The God Delusion. I, I wrote a book refuting right. The God Delusion. <laughs> what is it? God is not a delusion. Yes. Anyway, and the the one we're talking about today is integralism. I don't know if you guys seen it. We got the book right here. I got it on the video in the bottom corner. We'll have links underneath to buy it. But uh, Father and Doctor, what made you guys write this book anyways? Well, I'll I'll start briefly for that. I was teaching a course in political philosophy, and uh, I didn't really have a, a good textbook that I could recommend to the the students. Um, so I thought that it'd be fun to to write one, uh, along with Alan, who's, uh, who's uh, someone I've discussed the, the questions with quite a lot over the years. And so we, uh, so that was one of the reasons that, that motivated us, motivated me. Uh, another thing was that the question of religious liberty, uh, something I'm interested in and how the Vatican II document fits into the whole tradition of the, the church, which is something that's been very controversial, as you probably know, over the decades. Um, and that's what's something I wanted to investigate uh, more thoroughly. Uh, and um, so a, a book on, on political philosophy seemed to be a good way of doing that, as it's, it's sort of the, um, the, the basis for political philosophy really has to be your understanding of what um, man and society are for. And therefore, unless you know how politics and religion um, fit together, then you you don't know, uh, you're not in a position to write political philosophy at all, I'd say. Doctor? Well, I remember when I was a kid, um, teenager, I I was, um, I was really into Thomas More and I, um, I was reading Utopia and and the, the opening is like a poem at the beginning of Utopia, which makes reference to Plato's Republic. And I went back out into town and I bought a copy of Plato's Republic from the bookshop in the centre of my hometown. And uh, and I was reading that and I'd also bought a copy of, of St. Benedict's Rule. And I remember sort of lying on the ground in the living room in my mum's mum and dad's house and I was reading through both of them simultaneously and I was thinking somehow some ideal perfect synthesis is possible between these two. And... Uh, yeah, then then it took you know, decades for Father Thomas to turn up and say, "Oh, we should write this book." Um, uh, but, uh, and I remember once I was also I was climbing Benahi, which is a uh, um, a mountain near Aberdeen, where they think um, they think uh, the Battle of Mons Graupius happened, which was uh, if I get this right, if I remember rightly, which is the battle where the 
the the final the, the last stand of the Britons when they're being defeated by the Romans. And I was climbing it in the first century, and I was climbing it with some colleagues of mine who was doing doctoral degrees at Aberdeen University. Um, and uh, and one of them asked me while we were walking up, what what's the we were discussing religious questions, and he asked me as if it was kind of a and this is an explicit question which has been implicitly posed to me, but nobody had ever uh, imposed opposed uh, ever posed it to me in such an explicit way. He said, "Well, he was a Scotsman." And he said, "He said, he said, well, what would, what would the, what would, what would the country and the world actually look like if everybody became a Catholic? Then what would it actually, what what would it look like?" Because and 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 so he he basically when he explained his question, he basically saying that. It's not plausible, the Catholic faith, unless you can explain how it would transform the whole of human society and, and the way in which a whole society would act. And I don't think people normally put the question that consciously or that explicitly, but I think that does lie behind a, a lot of people's... Um, uh, they, they think about a, world, a Catholic world and whether they would like it or not. And I think in England... Uh, that's been very powerful because uh, Protestants over the centuries have used this idea of papish tyranny and all this kind of stuff to, 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 as the bogeyman, you know, the Spanish Inquisition coming, pouring in and, uh, you know, prodding you with soft cushions and, and, and feathers. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, they, they, they've got this, they've got this ready in the background. I don't mean this is a, I mean, it is a conscious thing in Protestant polemicists over the years, but but I, I think it's a subconscious and a reasonable question. Man is a man is a social and political animal, and in the end, uh, you're not really preaching the gospel to him if you're not preaching it to the whole person. And so you have to be able to say how how the world would look if everybody accepted the truth of the message which you're proclaiming. And um, in addition to that, when Father Thomas suggested the idea to the book, he sent me a list of provisional list of theses, which is the background to the theses which appear in the book. And uh, I thought, God, these are useful. And I used them for the exam for my, for my Catholic social teaching class uh, a week later. And I thought, yes, that was very handy. We should write this book. Yeah, that was, I thought that was fast, a great idea to put it in the book at the end of each chapter as well. Uh, almost that you get to go back. Hey, wh where was that at again? Go back and reread that chapter for that pr particular thesis. Um, where do you guys think that we really went off the rails? Uh, English Revolution, French Revolution. Uh, I know you, everyone could say Garden Eden, but where was it that where we really went off the rails on government separating church and states to the liberalism we see today? Well, it was a slow process, wasn't it? I mean, it was a. Alan is more of a, is a historian. I'm not, but. I have the impression that things that were decaying from, from the middle from the Middle Ages, from the, at least from the latter part of the Middle Ages, with the rise of the. Uh, let's say with the rise of the King of France and the, uh, the tussle between the, uh, the papacy and the, uh, the, the temporal rulers like the King of France, which. Um, uh, lead, leading to the weakening of the papacy, the Avignon captivity, and then the great, great schism, and then considerist movement. So all that, uh, that served as as a disposition to un, to undermine Christendom. So 
obviously when somebody dies you don't go from being a healthy human being to uh, to being a corpse normally uh, unless you're hit by a, uh, a bullet or something like that but in, in um, normal normal death there's a, a process of, uh, of weakening and of decay and then finally the moment of death and so the, the weakening is going on in the later middle ages it seems to me and then well the death comes at different points at different places so it, it comes really straight away whenever a, a protestantism takes over in the reformation and then uh, in catholic countries the the moment of death is the moment of of secularization so the, the great um pivotal moment of course is the french revolution uh, in, in, um, in 1789 when the um, when the catholic faith is no longer recognized as the as the true faith the, the faith of the uh of the kingdom so essentially as soon as you as soon as you cease to recognize uh that the, the catholic faith is true and can be known to be true and should be the basis of of social life as well as personal life that i mean that at that point christendom has died in that particular place i would say yeah, I think uh, this this question troubles me a lot all the time, partly because of being a historian, and so it's obviously the sort of thing that occurs to you whenever you're looking at different periods. Um, I think um, uh, I think there's two different things. There's a, a kind of like why, what put us in the situation where the calamity could happen to us, and then and then how the calamity happened to us if that makes any sense and i think the, the second one is a lot easier i think um the, the medieval christendom was in some ways a victim of its own success because um we reached such a sort of pitch of of uh, i mean it seemed very unsatisfactory at the time just um, in the 13th century i'm thinking at the, at the time it seemed very unsatisfactory because just like when someone approaches sanctity they suddenly start realizing how dreadful a person they really are and um and and so it's much more vivid for someone who's 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 approaching sanctity how terrible their sins are whereas someone who's coasting along bumping along the bottom of the purgative way um uh like most of us um uh then then it's like oh i'm a reasonably okay guy um <laughs> so 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 i think think this the 13th century is 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 um uh i think this is a bit glib, but I think it's somebody, a priest, told me once, a very, very witty and clever Swiss priest once said to me um, uh, that, uh, that it was all St. Thomas's fault, that by synthesizing faith and reason so perfectly, he left the devil no room. Uh, so instead of, whereas, whereas up to the time of St. Thomas, there was this kind of struggle between faith and reason. People often think the modern period is, is about a struggle between faith and reason. But he was arguing it's really the opposite way around. He's saying that the, the, the pre-modern period was a, was a struggle between faith and reason as, as we tried to synthesize the two, and the devil tried to stop us synthesizing the two. And then suddenly, click, we did synthesize it. It was, it was perfected and completed in the 13th century. And then the devil was forced to, as it were, change his strategy to destroying reason because, because, because we had synthesized faith and reason perfectly. And therefore, he had to he had to undermine the very principles of thought that itself, and that that's what begins to happen in the later Middle Ages. That um, that the that the evil one works on the the sort of 
silly rivalries of the different religious orders, no offence, Father Thomas, um, and, uh, and uses that as a vehicle for unpicking the whole of Western philosophy and thought, going back to Socrates and... Um, and uh, and that's what creates this kind of monstrosity of modernity, which is sort of grows bigger and bigger and bigger until it tries to devour Christendom. Uh, but I think, uh, in terms of of how we got ourselves in that position, I think it, uh, it's 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 tragic. In I mean, in the in the proper sense, in that the thing that made for the greatness of the High Middle Ages was also the the main problem with it. And I think people understood that at the time, which is that the Great Schism which happened at the very beginning of that period, um, uh, the popes were always determined to reverse that. Um, and, the, and the Crusades and these various reunion councils and some of the, the highest achievements intellectually of, of the Middle Ages are, are partly triggered by a desire to, to solve the problems lying behind the Great Schism. Um, and... Um, but at the same time, because the West becomes isolated from the eastern half of the church, the popes are free to do vastly more than they would otherwise have been able to do, because they everyone's much more obedient to them in the Latin West. So because the church gets constricted to the Latin West, um, uh, the popes are able to do vastly more. Um, but that means they kind of end up doing more than they can really handle, and that's one of the problems. And they also... Uh, they also, because they never do solve the Great Schism um, and the Crusades in the end don't succeed, there's this sort of demoralization sets in and the, the papacy becomes a kind of a bureaucracy that begins to defeat the purposes for which it was instituted um, and, um, and people become cynical and, and, and give up on the Crusades and no longer believe they can succeed and, and that, that, cre that creates the there's a weariness of the ideals because they don't seem to be being realised, and that and that that create weakens the the body of Christendom for the attack of of modernity. There we are. That's my overlong answer. So, what is integralism, anyways? This for someone that just sees the book and maybe they they're interested and they see political philosophy on it. What does the word mean for them? So, just to give them a brief introduction. Well, you could say that integralism is a is a one word um, is one word that signifies the the principles that underlie uh, a Catholic social order or the principles uh, that underlie Christendom. Uh, so, more specifically, it's the idea that um, the people who who govern us, um, whether it's presidents or prime ministers or senators and so on, and more abstractly, the, the constitutional arrangements under which we live, that they can and, and should recognize uh, the truth of the Catholic faith and the fact that we have a, a, a purpose in our life given by God and that um, that purpose is ultimately not of this world, that it belongs to eternity and that the highest, though not the only uh, responsibility of those who govern us is to help us to reach it, to reach heaven. That would be my my simple answer. So it's the opposite. You could say it's the opposite of secularism. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the word implies, as it were, integration, and and so it's um, it's a uh, it's as in in other way of putting it, it's the opposite of liberalism, uh, in that liberalism pretends it doesn't actually do this because it's impossible to do, 
and also because it doesn't really want to do it but but it pretends to be neutral so like it just creates a kind of neutral space in which people's ideas about the meaning of life and the world can kind of you know compete in a free market and um but in fact that's that's not really what's going on um uh, all as, as the catechism says in paragraph 2244 um uh, all societies are inspired by an idea about what man and his destiny is what is human nature and what are human beings here for and, and it's, there's no way you can construct a society without having some assumptions about that behind that society. And if, so, so by pretending to be neutral, liberalism actually just says these questions are not important, which means that ultimately the philosophy of that society is necessarily nihilistic hedonism. And you can see that around. If, Liberal, liberalism just leads inevitably to nihilistic hedonism. That so you get these kind of little reactions because people see the horrible consequences and then they they panic. But it it, it continues the descent. But you have little kind of it, it zigzags. But it keeps going downwards. I mean, you see that with the sort of decades of twentieth century history. You know, the fifties are a reaction to the couple of decades beforehand, and the eighties are a reaction to the couple of decades before them. But each time it's a slightly weaker reaction to a slightly worse decline in each case. Um, so um, integralism uh, means the doctrine which liberalism was trying to destroy, was founded to destroy, which is that that we need to take seriously and we can know the answer to what what human nature is and what man's destiny is. And, and, uh, and when we actually engage on that question as important and soluble and the true basis of social organization, then Catholicism necessarily prevails. Um, that's, uh, people often say that integralism is impossible to achieve and therefore we should give up and just be good little, little exterior liberals while secretly holding the Catholic faith in our hearts. But this is, this is a really foolish idea because in, in a way, Basically, you could say we could win a skirmish in this battle much more easily uh, by defending this position over here than by defending this much more difficult position here. But the problem is that the, the position you could defend and, and, and win the skirmish is a completely useless position, which having defended, you just get massacred because there's no, it's, it's indefensible. So, 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 I mean, in order to win the battle, you have to defend a position from which you can actually win the battle. And that's people who think that, oh, well, this is much too difficult. We can't really defend a, a society of, uh, which is comprehensively Catholic because that would just be too hard. It's impossible to imagine. Well, A, God decides whether or not we convert everybody in our society, not us. Um, uh, and so, so to say, oh, well, you know, well, it's, it's never going to happen is an insult to the Almighty. Um, and B, it's because man is a social animal and certain political animal. There's no way, you, if you if you say, "Oh, we'll just defend Catholicism as a as a private religious opinion that we hold in our families, or at least once all our families have lapsed, we hold privately in our hearts," um, uh, is basically to defend a, a a more defensible but ultimately useless position, which leads to us being massacred. And that's that's basically where we are now. Yeah, and that analogy that comes. Just came to my mind when, when Alan, you were talking about the, the inexorable decline of public morals and um, um, of uh, the sort of social grasp of, of transcendent truth uh, in a liberal society, 
is what they they call Gresham's law in economics that that bad money drives out good. So um, that uh, ultimately is going back to the uh, days of of only metal metal money, and so people clipping off the uh, the corners or debasing the currency with with metal that's less precious, uh, and the bad money. Uh, drives out the good in the sense that the bad money is, is kept in circulation and people keep the the good one, the good money for themselves under their bed or something like that. So I think in a liberal society, you could say that you get a, an intellectual equivalent of Gresham's law, uh, that um, that bad ideas drive out good ones. Uh, this is the, the bent of human nature, the form of human nature is uh, is always to take the, the easier and easier course. So you, uh, so you go further and further downhill. Uh, unless there is some kind of public recognition uh, of the truth and in some kind of way of enforcing uh, the truth, uh, enforcing it in a way that is nevertheless compatible with uh, God's plan for the way people should accept the truth, which is is not by uh, coerced conversion. So uh, that's an important point to distinguish between uh, the Catholic uh, conception of um, uh, the political order and the Islamic one. So there's no place for forcibly converting unbaptized people uh, to the Catholic faith, but nevertheless, uh, a Catholic society will recognize the truth of the faith and will stop people trying to to debase the currency, so so stop uh, people trying to present uh, heretical ideas as if they were uh, the truth revealed by God. I started thinking when you were talking about that, that that, uh, the book uh, Ideas Have Consequences and then... uh... Ten books that screwed up the society, and five more that didn't help out either. <laughs> I butchered that title, but it's something about that. Um, I uh, just before um, I uh, um, what's I going to say? Uh, the um, yeah, one thing that really frustrated me when I was a, a teenager is the whole concept of the word religion, the way it's used. Probably, possibly, this might be true, more true in Britain than it is in the US. But people say, "Oh, well, you only say that because you're religious," and that used to drive me completely crazy um, because you know I, you know, I was reading, you know. St. Thomas More and St. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine had all kinds of arguments to defend these positions and people just, oh, you just say that because you're religious. And and it's, it's creation of this category, right, of, of, of religion. And you're like, there's religion, which goes over here. If, 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 you're, if your theory about what should be done in the world is based on John Maynard Keynes or, um, or Milton Friedman or Karl Marx or, um, or, or Sigmund Freud, then that's fine go ahead, you know, just try and apply it to society and experiment on everybody's children and trash their jobs and all this kind of stuff. That's fine. Uh, but if, if your theory is based on Augustine and Aquinas and, uh, and Boethius um, and Leo Thirteenth, well, that, that's just religious. So, so that's, 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 that's to be put off. And it's basically a, 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 it's a terrible thing. We should never have conceded this idea because basically it allows the exclusion of, of, um, and of course, the Catholic faith is supernaturally certain, although that's only true for people who are Catholics, which is an important distinction and why forcible conversion, one of the reasons why forcible conversion is is absolutely forbidden. But I mean, uh, our secular uh, contemporaries do not, they, they're not worried about using coercive force to back up the conclusions which they've derived from their theories about climate change or transsexualism or, or any number of, of, of dubitable or outright 
preposterous theories which they which they've come up with um and yet we've by agreeing to this liberal category of religion which is and and we've implicitly conceded uh, you know the dawkins style idea of what what the catholic faith is that it belongs to this category of weird opinions that you can't prove but because you feel fuzzy about you're allowed privately to hold on to and i mean if if we if we can see that that's that's what the basis of of our thought and action and belief and aspiration is then obviously people are quite right to put our put the catholic faith in a weird box marked crazy private opinions that we don't talk about at dinner parties <laughs> so when you brought up a minute ago about uh uh people saying that it's impossible to pull this off to have a church and state uh, a state that's fully basically catholic and especially in modern times wasn't ecuador with garcia moreno proclaimed by leo the 13th as the greatest catholic example of a catholic government on the world in the world and Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, mean, I suppose that's an example of how, of how it's not impossible to uh, at least to try to implement these ideas, but how it's is very difficult in, in the modern world because he ended up getting, uh, if I remember correctly, killed by the, the Freemasons, or at least by people who were yeah, he was hacked the Freemasons were happy shot, about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, to say it's impossible as well as as we've seen, as as Alan was saying, would be it would be. Um, uh, insult to divine grace, uh, uh, and we know we know it's not Im- impossible in general because we've had Christendom before. Um, so uh, Christendom is not a intrinsically uh, absurd or impossible concept. It's just uh, something that's very difficult to to build from starting where we are now. But we've not got anywhere to, anywhere else to start from, so we have to start from here. Yeah, we. Um, uh... Of course, I mean, modernity is designed to destroy Christendom. That's why it was created. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, obviously, it's a more difficult place to start from than just paganism in the ancient world, because that, that was designed to uh, to avoid Christendom, and uh, but um, rather than to destroy it. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, the, uh, this, um, Otto von Habsburg used to say... Um, the, the son of the last Austrian emperor, Blessed Karl of Austria, he used to say, at the end of the world, when you die, God isn't going to ask you whether you succeeded or failed in the course of your life, because he decided whether you succeeded or failed in the course of your life. Um, he's not interested in that. He's going to ask you which side you fought on and how hard you fought. Right, That's what he's interested in. That's what's going to decide whether it's up or down. Um, uh, so you should uh, make sure you're fighting on the wrong side and then fight as hard as you can. That's your job, um, uh, which must have, you know, been a, some, a, a reflection that weighed on him a lot, obviously, as he, he never, was never restored to the throne um, in the course of his life, though he, he did many good and valiant uh, um, things to try and defend sanity and... and uh, um, Maybe uh, put it in yeah, front of that, make that, sure you're make fighting sure. first, and then fighting oh, on the right side. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Father Tom, there's, there's, a, there's a joke about the Irishman who you ask directions, that what the Irishman says when you ask him directions, and he says, well, first of all, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> and, um, but uh, it's, it's ironic that, because in a way, Ireland is a very interesting case, obviously a disastrous case um, from the present perspective, but um, in that it was a country with 
a very large, the Republic of Ireland anyway, is a country with a very large Catholic majority that had the opportunity to create a new civil order from nothing uh, in the 1930s. Um, and and they, they wrote their constitution from scratch. And um, uh, and and they, uh, people often ask, I mean, uh, what how things got so so bad in Ireland at the moment. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that they kind of lost their nerve. It was precisely the belief that integralism was just a little bit too much and not quite achievable, even though it was in their hand at the time uh, that, 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 that caused the problem. Because when they created the Irish Constitution, which has many admirable passages um, um, and is, is, uh, has you know, many, many things to commend it. It's getting, um, getting taken, taken apart clause by clause at the moment. Yes, very depressing. But, uh, but they... Um, they, uh, in, I've forgotten this article 40-something about religion, and it's this wonderful preamble all about the Trinity, um, but it gets to the article 40-something about religion, and it, and it, um, uh, and it says, uh, it used to say anyway, um, uh, the holy, holy Catholic, apostolic, and Roman church is recognized by the Irish state as uh, the um, protector of the faith of the vast majority of the people of Ireland. And it's it's a it's a terrible moment of of of, of loss of nerve because you'll look it's a strange list you, you know you read it you think hang on there's something missing here because the holy Catholic Apostolic and Roman Church as the protector of the faith of the vast majority of the people of Ireland so the, the the Constitution begins by invoking the Trinity so it's already Trinitarian Christianity is explicitly asserted as true in at the beginning of the Constitution but then when it gets to the section on on um, on the true relig on religion, it leaves off the word one from the description of the Catholic Church. And uh, the reason why it leaves off the word one is because it doesn't want to actually assert the truth of the Catholic faith as such in the Constitution, basically so that the Protestants in the north of Ireland can't claim that they're being asked to, to join a Catholic state and therefore can't use that as an excuse for, um, for not... Uh, for opposing the the unite, uniting of the whole of Ireland, but this is a terrible because uh, it's essentially seeking an earthly good, um, which is an, a non-divided island, uh, and sacrificing uh, something that we owe to God for that sake, and and that is it is profoundly offensive, and you know is is you know if Moses can spend forty years in the wilderness and die without reaching the promised land for hitting a rock twice instead of once. <laughs> Uh, then you know you, you've got to be careful about these things, and, uh, um, and uh, yeah. Um, uh, so so it, it's 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 ironic that the one word that's missing from the Irish Constitution, making it as it were offensive to God, is the word "one," and they tried to get the, the Holy See to kind of sign off on it because it had to be passed by a referendum and say they were happy with the Constitution, and the the Secretary of State at the time, Eugenio Pacelli, who became uh, Pius the Twelfth. He wouldn't sign off on it. They, the Holy See, because uh, they realised that it had loads of good stuff in it, but they realised that it wasn't quite, you know, the crucial missing elements. So, so, so he wouldn't. He didn't denounce it, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He wouldn't write a little blurb on the back saying how great. It was. <laughs> and, I think. Uh, you think he said, "I neither approve nor disapprove. I remain silent." Yeah. <laughs> so and, was, uh, Ireland wasn't confessionally Catholic then. No, it wasn't. No, I mean it was so silly because it it, it gave it, it it came so close that that it it was entirely perceived as confessionally Catholic by Protestants in the north, 
And I mean, it's not as if the United Kingdom isn't confessionally a Protestant. It is. The, 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 um, the, the monarch has to swear an oath to remain a Protestant before uh, at the coronation and at the, at the moment of accession, right? So, so the United Kingdom is confessionally Protestant. So, the United, so you could hardly say, oh, it's not fair. Things shouldn't be confessional. Because, I mean, because, I mean the United Kingdom is confessionally Protestant. So, um, so they held off on making the Irish Republic confessionally Catholic. But everybody perceived it as confessionally Catholic, apart from God. Um, uh, so, so, so they got, they got no, nothing out of it in terms of worldly political um, uh, returns on this uh, act of disloyalty. Um, and, um, and yet they, they successfully managed to offend the Almighty um, uh, and, and what, hence produce the current situation. Basically what you're saying as well is if we go to turn back to the, uh, the colonies, uh, yes, the, uh, the Constitution says there's, uh, for the feds, the Congress shall not pass anything but the colonies 12 out of 13 had state religions so those technically would have been 12 out of 13 were confessionally protestant right i i i'm not sure what the argument as to what number of them were but certainly many of them had established um established religion of some sort or another and um I mean, uh, and as you say the first amendment technically doesn't prohibit that it just it doesn't prohibit it for the states and because it just says that Congress can't pass a law regarding the establishment of religion, and of course it doesn't prevent it for the Federation as a whole if um, if uh, a constitutional amendment were passed. It doesn't say and this um, and this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, th there is no mechanism preventing that from happening. Um, uh, there was a movement in the 19th century. I've forgotten the name of the, of the but to try and have an amendment uh, added to the U.S. Constitution, which would have. Uh, it was a Protestant movement, but would have would have asserted um, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and the inerrancy of Scripture um, in the U.S. Constitution, which never quite made it across the line. I believe it was quite strong uh, in the wake of the Civil War. There was a sort of moral panic, in a sense, you know, as with this missing word from the Irish Constitution, a sense that God might have been offended by by something missing from uh, the U.S. Constitution. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, of course, whether the this is a technical question, but whether the whether the sovereign entities in uh, in 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 as it were divine, well, divine I don't know, how you, but in natural law of the um, if the U.S. are the other states or the or the federation is is a very difficult question um, because I mean the the Treaty of Paris. Um, at the end of the um, U.S. War of Independence, uh, granted independence and sovereignty to, you know, New Hampshire, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Vermont, etc., etc., not to the United States of America. Right? So, so they became sovereign entities, um, and um, uh, I, think, I think there's a good argument that the U.S. Constitution wouldn't have been passed if it had been believed when it was passed that uh, secession was impossible. Um, but on the other hand, it begins, we the people of the United States of America, it doesn't begin, we the high contracting party signing on behalf of the of Vermont, Virginia, um, New Hampshire, etc. So, so, so the Constitution is written as if it's creating uh, a um, a single unitary unitary state with provinces, 
But of course, those provinces are called states, and they were in international law sovereign entities when they created it. So, so I suppose you could argue that if it were really just an organization of sovereign states, uh, the 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 offence to God of not confessing uh, the true religion or even trying to would not be so great. You know, we're not with a Catholic state is not offending God by joining the International Olympic, whatever it's called, um, just because it doesn't have a declaration of the kingship of Christ um, in its constitution. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, but on the other, I mean, obviously, uh, to all intents and purposes, the United States of America is a single unitary state with a lot of provinces which have quite widespread powers. Um, yeah. Yep. I remember Patrick Henry, I remember in his, in Virginia was, arguing that why are we calling it we the people and not we the states um father father for everyone out here father's in england dr allen is uh he has a foot in both of us uh i think where do you see uh both i was i i hate calling the united states a nation i call it a, a union i usually the union versus the united kingdom i guess you both go both unions contrast that from i mean are we not even close to doing the kingship of christ in both of them right but because of the governance is there one that could i don't know the higher chance of proclaiming it than the other is there like united kingdom because it's monarchy versus united states where it's basically a elected oligarchy right now but do you, what would need to change to get both of them if that's even possible well, I think the, the most obvious thing that would need to change is that a large uh, majority of the inhabitants would have to become Catholics, convinced Catholics. Uh, I mean, I suppose each country has got some advantages. Uh, we've got the advantage that there is already, as I think Adam mentioned, uh, a religious test before you can become the head of state uh, in in uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, it's just that they, they're testing for the the wrong religion at the moment, but um, at least the principle that you have to belong to a certain religion in order to be the, the monarch uh, is recognized uh, and always has been for as long as there's been a, a monarch uh, in, in this country. Um, whereas uh, uh, over over where you are, well, there are, there are more people who take religion seriously than there are over where we are. Um, so at least if you there's certainly more more people who take christianity seriously um as a percentage of the population so that's obviously a big advantage for the united states yeah i think uh, we uh in 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 the uk we sort of hide behind the anglicans a bit um in the sense that um that a lot of the kind of things you know banning prayer in schools and 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 um uh some of the, these ideas are, are held back by the fact that Anglicanism is the established religion. But on the other hand, Anglicanism is a sort of, uh, actually, a David Hume, uh, the nasty, uh, secularizing, um, mere brilliant sophist of the of the uh, 18th century. Um, he, uh, he, I think in his history of England, he extols Anglicanism for its its ability to sort of 
lull the population into apostasy without them feeling that it's really happening. Um, uh, it's, it's a very, very accurate analysis of, uh, of what he thinks is wonderful. Um, and uh, but the um, yes, yeah, so I think I think it does have many advantages that there is a, an established religion, but it does also allow people to feel that they've somehow it soothes their guilt concerning you know because the, the the commandments are, are, are written on our hearts and and so so people cannot help but um cannot help but feel that they're falling into that they're failing in some regard but but they but i think anglicanism sort of sort of anesthetized them to that um uh there's some um, father thomas uh where did uh i think he wrote on facebook a few years ago i think that's funny. um uh um, I remember it was when they were legalizing gay marriage. Oh, uh, about France, France and England was that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to so, remember. It. Yeah. So, the, yeah. So the French. So there was the difference between France and England. Uh, in France, the socialist government has just abolished marriage. That could never happen in England. In England, the conservative government is abolishing it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. I think some of the, the the great fervor of patriotism in the United States, which is now somewhat less in these terrible times of of sort of rioting and and demolition, um, but uh, um, is partly because the U.S. doesn't have an established religion. I mean, in the in the sense that that uh, that, that patriotism becomes a kind of surrogate religion, and and that that's obviously in itself not healthy. But um, but I mean, obviously, patriotism is a good thing. Um, uh, so 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 it has. Uh, as its compensations. But. That's funny you brought that up because another guy, Brian McCannahan, calls it uh, uh, Yankee Puritanism that we're seeing with the uh, the riots and the tear down of statues and things like that, which is a religion itself from the guys that got kicked out of England because the Anglicans didn't want them even on their land and they came here. <laughs> uh, so you think you think this is the long shadow of Edwardian Protestantism? I mean, the <laughs> sixth. Uh, the, when they were smashing up all the statues in England, they're all that's deeply buried in the DNA of the US population. It, it just keeps coming up and coming up every so often, it keeps popping its head out and then usually gets killed off pretty quick, but now, now we can't get it to go away. Um, in the book, you guys, it, the order, the content, the table of contents, is it more of a building up to the last two chapters? I, we talked off. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we talked off camera going, I was interested in all the chapters, but the last two were just like, mm, bam, the, the greatest two chapters in the book. So my question, is that the way, do, am I seeing that right? Or was it completely just me, just in personal interpretation of how everything was written? Is it a build up to that level or it was just, you know, just yes, topic by topic? I mean, it's meant to be, we call it a manual. So that implies that it's... Uh, a systematic account of um, philosophical concepts. So, starting with the most most basic ones of all, like what is a society, what are societies in general, um, and then then looking at the uh, the, uh, uh, the the uh, the properties of every society, the different uh, divisions of power within it, the nature of law within it, the different ways in which the um, uh, the organs of power can be can be distributed, um, 
And so when all the all that is put in place first, um, and to some extent, I suppose those first ten chapters um, would be relevant in what well, we, we use a phrase we use the phrase in order of providence quite a lot in this book. There's this idea that there are different possible orders of providence. In other words, God could could have given us all kinds of different uh, goals for our life. In fact, he's given us the, the beatific vision as our ultimate goal. And as the means to it, he's given us um, the incarnation of uh, the second person, the Blessed Trinity, uh, and the Catholic Church, and the sacraments. Uh, and that is the, our actual order of providence. Um, but there's all kinds of other order, orders of providence in which we could have had different ends and different ways of reaching them. Uh, it was is up to God. Uh, and I suppose that the, the first 10 chapters of our book, uh, even though we're, we're constantly aware of the actual order of providence that we're living in, and we try to relate everything we say to that, I think the first 10 chapters could be put into a philosophy manual in some form, uh, in any hypothetical world in which uh, man might have been created. Uh, whereas the last two, I think, are more um, particularly focused on the actual world in which we're living, in which um, there is uh, our Lord, Jesus Christ, and the Catholic Church, and there is um, the sac there are the sacraments, and there is um, uh, a constant struggle between the Catholic Church and the uh, the city of this world or the city of the devil, as St. Augustine calls it. And so we argue that this is the, uh, the deepest uh, meaning of history. Uh, and perhaps that's why the last two chapters sort of affected you as more of a, more of a, a punch or something, because they're, more, they're, more, they're perhaps less abstract and more focused on the, um, the actual order of providence which we're living. I, I don't know whether or not Alan would agree with that analysis, though. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I was trying to think of an analogy. Um, the first thing that occurred to me was an orchestra tuning up, you know, they're getting all, make sure everybody's uh, in tune with each other, all the instruments are in the correct, and we've got all the elements together. But I mean, I suppose I don't really want to say the book is like listening to an orchestra tune out for 10 chapters and then a two chapter long symphony. Um, but uh, but the, um, uh, the, the uh, but then suddenly, boom, in you go, because all the elements are got in, into line. And then the, the then the actual symphony begins. Um, uh, but the the another way of looking at it is um, one of these uh, one of these something like um, uh, oh, what's it called again? Um, uh, Brahms's academic overture. And he he does all these variations on this medieval student drinking song, but he never actually plays the plays the tune itself until quite late in the piece and then suddenly it's kind of boom, triumphantly comes in and so i suppose there is a little bit of that atmosphere to the to the um to the book in that that we're we're trying to make sure we've got all the right things there you know make sure we understand where we're coming from and, and what what the basic concepts are and 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 then we suddenly put them all together uh, in the last two chapters and, and the postscript uh, and 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 let let rip with the orchestra, um, <clears throat> but I mean that's because you know everybody's been playing the wrong tune on the, on an upside down Tupperware box, 
uh, for a long time. So, so it's very important that that you that you do get the the instruments tuned and you make sure you have the right ones and you make sure you've arranged the music in the right order on the on the stand before you actually get going. Now, now I'll link the interviews you guys did before, like uh, Father Crean did uh, one with Brother Andre about the what is society, uh, the common good, family servitude. I know Dr. Allen has done on the two swords, uh, the two swords, uh, which is chapter eleven. But uh, could you guys talk about the two cities? Yeah. Um, so the two cities is famous. The uh, a phrase coined by Saint Augustine in his his masterwork, the City of God. Um, so it's the idea that actually before the beginning of the world, from even from the, the fall of the angels. That there have been um, two uh, camps of, of rational beings, um, which are, are necessarily uh, at enmity or in, at least in opposition to each other. Um, so, uh, so Saint Augustine famously expresses it by saying, um, uh, "These two cities are composed by those who uh, uh, love God, even." To the point of uh, contempt of themselves, and those who love themselves even to the point of contempt of God. Um, so the, the, that's what we mean by the two cities, um, and uh, the, the, these uh, the two cities are not mere abstractions, but they are uh, real forces within history, and and um, God Himself, um, by means of the incarnation has made himself the head of the city of God uh, and has given it uh, a visible form as the Catholic Church, um, which is not to say that every Catholic is in a state of grace and is actually um, belonging to the city of God. There are Catholics who are in a state of mortal sin and they are actually um, uh, they are actually fighting, whether they know it or not, for the, the enemy cause. But nevertheless, the Catholic Church itself is the, um, the body set up on earth by God to uh, bring about the triumph of God's, God's will on earth. Um, and uh, so that's, the, that's what we call the city of God on earth. And of course, the city of God is not just on earth, but also extends into um, purgatory and, and heaven itself. Uh, and St. Thomas Aquinas... Um, carries on St. Augustine's ideas uh, very briefly, but he's completely in line with St. Augustine. And he says that there is, um, that the Christ, of course, is the head of all the just, being the head of the church. Uh, and the devil uh, is, as he puts it, the head of all the wicked. Uh, so he takes it that the devil's intention um, is consciously to bring about the maximum possible rebellion of intellectual creatures from God. So the devil, um, of course, wants to put himself in the place of God. Uh, God, God um, has the right to the service of all intellectual creatures. Uh, and so the devil, in order to copy uh, God, tries to acquire for himself the, the service of all intellectual creatures. And so he needs to bring about the, the maximum possible rebellion of uh, men and angels from doing God's will. Uh, and so, and that's what happens whenever anybody sins, even if they don't don't believe in the devil, they are nevertheless um, fighting 
on his side by uh, committing mortal sin. So that's um, that's a summary of what we mean by the two cities. The um, uh, when St Thomas analyzes why the devil fell in the Summa Theologiae, um, uh, he talks about the fact that he that that at the beginning of time before the blessed angels were given the vision of God uh, and before the, the, the fallen angels fell, um, uh, that uh, God had created them for the immediate vision of himself for the supernatural end is revealed to them. And uh, so that the angels for a moment have faith um, uh, before the fallen ones apostatize and the blessed ones are glorified. And um, uh, and the, the 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 reason for the fall of the fallen angels is that they they won't accept that the um, like many modern theologians they won't accept that uh, that the that the gift of of participation in God's nature and to see God as He is in Himself is God's gift. They they insist that they have a right to it instead. Um, and um uh, the, the so it's it's very um and that that lie the denial of the gratuity of the supernatural order um the refusal to accept the refusal to say please and thank you the ref, the refusal to accept as a gift god's gift is the is at the heart of of the fall of the angels and uh, that's why correspondingly the eucharist the thanksgiving is at the heart of the of the city of God, um, wayfaring on this earth, because um, to be in the city of God is to be is to say please and thank you, is is to accept the gratuity of God's gift of, of participation in His life and and His gift of of saving us from our previous ingratitude, um, um, which is so in the in in. Um, when we're told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's our way of acknowledging the gratuity of the blessings that God has given us and the fact that we don't have a right to them. And Satan persuading our first parents to ignore that command is his way of getting them to assert their equality with God. Um, and, and that has an interesting consequence in history, which is that... that um, the reason why there's a there's there's a temporal power and a spiritual power, what gets called the church and the state somewhat inaccurately, um, uh, um, is because uh, is because man has sinned. So although man has uh, a sort of thing, uh, uh, a perfection which is available to his nature even apart from the gift of divine grace, and that's the focus of the temporal power. Um, and he has the the perfection, the infinite and, and absolute perfection of, of of the vision of God, the attainment of which is the focus of the spiritual power. Those two things don't conflict in themselves. So, uh, and by achieving man's supernatural end, one would achieve his natural end, as our Lord says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His justice, and these other things will be added unto you. Um, uh, so, so, so you'd achieve the natural end of man and for which the temporal order exists by achieving the supernatural end so that, so in principle there's no need for two separate authorities to govern them the reason why there are two separate authorities is because of sin because uh 
because sin creates this tension between nature and grace. And uh, part of the reason for that is that is that the essence of sin, the reason for the fall of the angels and our later participation in that fall, is is this claim that that our 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 end is our natural end, that it's the supernatural, all fulfilling end is in fact our natural end, and that would mean that the church would be the state. I mean that the that uh, that the, the temporal order is all we need, and that and that that. Of course, it would also mean to say that, that, that God has to give us share, share in his nature is essentially to say that we already have it, is, to, is a claim to be divine. As, um, as uh, um, Satan says, I will make myself like the Most High. Right? Um, uh, and so that's why, uh, although the temporal power is supposed to be um, a part of the overall order of the Church and of Christendom, and uh, is a good and, and, and wholesome thing in itself. It's the focus of all the ambitions and desires of those who are citizens of the city of the world. They want to gain hold of the temporal power. They want us to worship the temporal power because, because, because according to the logic of the devil's rebellion, um, there the should only be the state and the state itself is ultimately divine according to the logic of his rebellion against God. And so you see in chapter 13 of Revelation, you have the, the, the two figures at the end of the world, the false prophet and the, and the Antichrist. Uh, one, what, the false prophet being the beast who comes from the sea, and sorry, the beast who comes from the land, and the um, Antichrist being the beast who comes from the sea. And uh, the false prophet is focused on getting everyone to worship uh, the name and the sign of the beast who comes from the sea. So, so the focus of error and heresy and false religion is always ultimately for man to worship himself um, and to worship his highest achievement on earth uh, apart from grace, which is the state, the, 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 the pseudo self-sufficient temporal order. And ultimately that involves worshiping the evil one because if, if created persons were the proper objects of worship, then the greatest object of worship would be the, uh, the naturally most powerful created person, which would be the, the leader of the fallen angels. Um, so so the, the secular state is a kind of temple for the worship of the evil one, which he's been slowly building over the last thousand years. And uh, I think also divine justice comes in here as well. So um, earlier on, Steve, you, you raised the question of um, why we should try to uh, restore Christendom and we were saying that well it's our, our duty to um, um, and that's a sufficient reason um, but also there's just a question of self-interest in a way I mean uh, lawful or at least not 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 um, uh, not obviously sinful self-interest which is that there is, there is in fact no neutral space uh, so if we don't accept Christ's uh, rights over some area of life, whether it's you know, education or, uh, or the family or economy or um, you know, the Houses of Parliament or the U.S. Senate, um, then we are we are joining in the rebellion of the devil, whether we know it or not. Uh, and I think that in as a just punishment uh, for that. Uh, divine justice allows us to fall under the 
uh, under the sway of the devil to a greater extent. Uh, and that's obviously a very um, undesirable position to be in. Um, so just in order to uh, prevent oneself being under uh, knowingly or unknowingly and unknowingly for most people to avoid being under the sway of the the enemy of mankind we want to um, establish the, the rights of Christ uh, in the social order you bring up a uh, temporal order and then in the book you make a you specifically make sure that people get that the state is kind of like a modern uh, word for that or a change from temporal order to state why is that significant Um, well, I think the, our main concern is that um, that the uh, the word has come in uh, in recent centuries um, at the same time as uh, the reality which it's trying to to name uh, is claiming to be self-sufficient, and so that there is a, um, a at least a connotation attaching to the word state. Um, which leads us to perhaps subconsciously think of it as being uh, what we call in the book, what is called in philosophy, a perfect society. So a society which has everything that it needs to attain its end. Uh, and this is precisely the point we're denying. Um, so temporal society, at the end of the purpose of temporal society is, is man's happiness on earth. Um, but the temporal society itself doesn't have the society generated by human nature doesn't have uh, the means even to reach happiness on earth. For that, we need we need divine grace. Uh, for example, to keep the commandments, we need divine grace. Uh, so, temporal society uh, is not we're arguing is not a, of itself a perfect society, um, as it's now claiming to be. Uh, and so, it seems to me that the word state has has entered into the. Um, the language at the same time as as an error about the nature of temporal society has has tended to prevail among people and, and that's why we're at least uh, uh cautious about using the word because well, it, it tends to it, it triggers the idea of of there's the state and there's the church which implies that if there's these two different entities um then then the um the church must if, if one admit, if one, if one either thinks it's a it's a nasty rival to the state, which is man's proper home, um, or one if one accepts its existence, then one thinks that it 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 governs and relates to some area of human life uh, that 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 the state um, doesn't deal with. Um, but this is a misconception. the The church is the city of God. It is man's proper home. And in and in Boniface VIII, in his his uh, infallible bull Unam Sanctam, he says, "In the Church and in her power are two swords." So, so for him, there is one society of the Church, one human society properly ordered to God, and within itself of the Church. And then there are certain uh, authorities uh, in that society, and which relate to the attainment of our uh, supernatural end, and they are governed by the clergy. And then there are certain authorities and activities in that society which um, uh, relate to the attainment of our natural end, but for the sake of the attainment of our supernatural end. And those are the and those are the 
uh, governed by the lay authorities, but those authorities are ultimately um, subject to censure if they if they violate uh, the necessities of man's supernatural end uh, by the by the clerical order. Um, and so, the, so there's two two hierarchies and 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 uh, powers that uh, that demand obedience within Christian society. But that society is the church. Um, it's not that there is that there is the church and then there's the state. And and the irony is that the the temporal order, when it when it recognizes itself as not self sufficient, and it um, and it uh, adopts the Catholic faith as its religion becomes a perfect society vicariously uh, but when but when it didn't when it claims that it is self-sufficient and closes itself off from the catholic faith it because it ceases to be a perfect society so th this is this is the um this is the analogy that um uh, of, of the sun and the moon that, that pope innocent the third uses and he says that the just as the moon receives its light from the sun so too the royal power derives the splendor of its dignity from the pontifical authority. So, so the, the the civil order, the temporal power, becomes a a reliable guide, a source of light for man when it reflects the light of the spiritual order. When it claims to be self-sufficient and it cuts itself off from the sun, it might as well not be there. We're plunged into darkness. Does the church okay? rebellion revolution this might be an easy one there's there's, there's a couple people out there saying that saint thomas is okay with killing tyrants and things like that um well um we i the church doesn't say that um that the subjects of a given of a of a given temporal ruler can just decide that they uh, want to get rid of him. I mean, unless of course, except insofar as they live in a uh, say a democratic society in which they've got the right to get rid of him after five years or seven years or whatever it is. But they can't just decide because they want to that they they're going to get rid of him because um, uh, they didn't confer on him. Uh, the right to rule even if they elected him uh, they, they simply designated who uh, who god would give the right to rule to um uh so in that so in that sense i would say no um uh, revolution rebellion as normally understood are are intrinsically bad things um in that sense uh on the other hand, you can have a situation which a, uh, a temporal ruler uh, makes it clear that he has no intention of of, of doing the um, uh, doing the job which belongs to him uh, because he's engaged, say, in, in major and permanent uh, violations of of uh, of the rights of his subjects, and he's not attempting to bring them in any sense to their their natural or supernatural end. Uh, so he's he's commanding cannibalism, to take an extreme example. Uh, so well, at least we argue uh, in the books, uh, supporting ourselves with uh, some uh, magisterial uh, basis. Though there isn't there isn't much to go on. 
that in those circumstances um, uh, the the subjects can can recognize the fact that the uh, the ruler has in fact renounced his office and they can act accordingly to to replace him yeah uh, it's um uh it's tricky um uh i mean i i hope what i'm about to say is um is correct and uh and and um uh, um i'm just looking at what council of constance says um uh, this most holy synod wishes to proceed with special care to the eradication of errors and heresies which are growing in various parts of the world, as is its duty and the purpose for which it has assembled. It has recently learned that various propositions have been taught that are erroneous both in the faith and as regards good morals, are scandalous in many ways and threaten to subvert the constitution and order of every state. Among these propositions, I mean, this is Norman Tanner's translation, I don't know what the, what the Latin was there. Among these propositions, this one has been reported colon, any tyrant can and ought to be killed licitly and meritoriously by any of his vassals or subjects, even by means of plots and blandishments or flattery, notwithstanding any oath taken or treaty made with the tyrant, without waiting for a sentence or command from any judge. This holy synod, wishing to oppose this error and to eradicate it, completely declares, decrees and defines after mature deliberation that this doctrine is erroneous in the faith and with regard to morals, and it rejects and condemns the doctrine as heretical, scandalous, and seditious, and as leading the way through perjury to frauds, deceptions, lies, and betrayals. It declares, decrees, and defines, moreover, that those who stubbornly assert this very pernicious doctrine are heretics and are to be punished as such according to canonical and legitimate sanctions. Now, the problem with that condemnation is it's so unbelievably broad um, that any tyrant can not to be killed illicitly in meritorious by any of his vassals or subjects, even by means of plots and blandishments or flattery, notwithstanding any oath taken or treaty made with a tyrant. I mean, you could say that, yeah, you can kill any ruler you want as long as he's a tyrant or you think he's a tyrant, as long as you don't flatter him at the same time. I mean, but yeah, I mean, I would say and, um, uh, in uh, Libertas, um, uh, of Pope Leo XIII, which is a much lower-ranking document than that. That's the definition of an ecumenical council, uh, the one that I just read out. Um, but in, in uh, Libertas, which is should nevertheless be treated with other reference because it's written by Leo XIII, um, uh, and of course it's Pope Leo XIII, um, but um, uh, um, uh, uh, let's see... Um, he says, neither does the church condemn those who, if it can be done without violation of justice, wish to make their country independent of any foreign or despotic power, nor does she blame those who wish to assign to the state the power of self-government and to its citizens the greatest possible measure of prosperity. The church has always most faithfully fostered civil liberty, and this was seen especially in Italy in the municipal prosperity, wealth and glory, which were obtained at a time when the salutary power of the church had spread without opposition to all parts of the state. So he's referring there to, of course, he doesn't use the word state in the Latin because Leo XIII never uses that. But anyway, um, uh, um, he's referring there to the great city-states of medieval Italy. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'd say that um, uh, you've got to obey the civil power, however um, imprudently it might be exercised, because the powers that be are ordained of God, as St. Paul says. Um and uh, but we must obey God rather than men. So if the civil power commands you to do something which is contrary to the natural law or the divine law, then you mustn't obey it. 
um, if um, if the civil power tries to force you to do something contrary to the natural law, then you have the power to resist. Um, the the power that the civil power had to to command you is transferred to you in resisting because you're now trying to uphold the natural law against the civil power. Because, I mean, it can't, to take a, an, a, an easily understood analogy, to say that you should obey the civil power doesn't mean that if um, if a bunch of British officials turn up in Normandy and start commanding everyone, bossing everyone around, you've got to do what they say because they're the civil power, because they're the civil power in the country next door. They're not the civil power in your country. So, so in the same way, if the civil power starts to tell you to do stuff that's contrary to the natural law, you're not rebelling against it by not, not doing what it says because it's not got the authority to tell you to do those things, right? I mean, um, if um, if the civil power tells you that you must read the Harry Potter books rather than the Narnia books to your children, then then it's, it's uh, or even if it tells you you must read um, uh, Swallows and Amazon stories rather than Peter Rabbit, I don't know, whatever, to your children. Um, it, it's gone beyond its its authority. It, it's like the British officials trying to tell people what to do in Normandy. I suppose I shouldn't have picked Normandy because uh, Britain might be having a problem in Normandy. Um, What's been on uh, your mind recently? Peter Rabbit, <laughs> Normandy? <laughs> well, let's say... Um, Let's say uh, um, Alsace instead, um, but the uh, but uh, yeah. So um, uh, but the um, uh, so uh, however, if they try and force you to act contrary to divine law, uh, then you have to refuse, but endure martyrdom because you can't use coercion to um, to impose the Catholic faith. So uh, so, but either way, you don't cooperate. But if it's in regards to the natural law. Um, uh, you can resist. Um, uh, now, the, the the tricky bit comes uh, particularly in uh, conversations in bars with one's American friends. The tricky bit comes when it comes to the state violating its own public laws, right? Um, uh, because um, obviously the the natural law tells you to obey the law of the land so long as it's not contrary to the natural law. So what do you do if, there's, if the law of the land is being violated by the authorities in charge of of imposing the law of the land, right? Um, uh, and so, uh, and, and I mean, you could say, oh well, you know, you take them to court, but I mean, obviously, that's partly might be a solution. But but the but I mean, obviously, as as we all know from recent experience, courts can violate the natural law and essentially just violate the law of the land because they feel like it. I mean, in the case of the U.S., that many of the justices of the Supreme Court seem to think that. The U.S. Constitution might as well be a blank piece of paper, or more accurately, a mirror, in which they just, they just see themselves. Apparently, and, that's what Bush said, because this is just a day camp, uh, blah 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 piece of paper. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what what do you do in that case? Now, uh, that seems very tricky. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's obviously you don't want to, but it is a prudential judgment. I mean, so for example, in the uh, celebrated case of the U.S. Constitution, U.S. United the thirteen colonies. Um, uh, you you have um, uh, um, essentially the colonists begin by saying that it's a fundamental principle of English law that you can't uh, impose taxes without the council of the whole realm, as Magna Carta puts it, and the council of their part of the realm has not been being has not been taken, and therefore it's it's illegitimate for. 
for the crown to impose taxes on them or parliament um uh and um so i mean now that's that's that that raises all sorts of questions about the nature of representation and what what that clause in magna carta meant and whether or not the 13 colonies were part of the kingdom of england or just completely independent realms which had been founded by the king of england um uh in which which whose subjects didn't have the same powers as the subjects of the king of england qua king of england and all these kind of arguments uh, i'm not saying i'm, I'm uh, supporting those counter arguments i'm just saying that those are the those are the obvious counter arguments um uh but I mean, let's assume that their position is correct. I think you can give an account of the American uh, Revolution, whereby it's a kind of counter-revolution. As I say, I'm not necessarily agreeing with this account, but I think it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the um, so you could say that you know George the Third, who of course is a Hanoverian usurper anyway, which complicates things further. But anyway, um, George the Third um, is imposing taxes, and he hasn't taken the council of our part of the realm at all in any way. Uh, therefore, this is against the public law of the realm, and therefore we are upholding the public law of the realm by refusing to accept these taxes. It's just as if a British official comes to Alsace and starts telling people what to do. Um, uh, we, we, so, um, and now uh, we refuse to cooperate, and then they declare war on us uh, for refusing to cooperate, and therefore we've got a right to resist because we're being attacked by our own ruler for for just doing for just going about our lawful business. And, and, and it reaches such a pitch that we have to establish a replacement for the crown, which is what the US Constitution essentially is, um, uh, because we were forced into it by the fact that we just went about our lawful business and our ruler declared war on us. And so, so on, that, on that account, the American counter-revolution, as it, as it would be, would be, would be entirely legitimate. And in a way, it's more important... Uh, that that whether one believes that is the basis of one's action than whether it's actually true in a funny way, in a sense. And I think there is this tension in U.S. history because uh, at a certain point, the U.S. Declaration of Independence suddenly kind of goes off that script and says, this is probably the wretched Thomas Paine's fault, goes off that, that script and starts to just say, yeah when we feel like it we can dissolve our arrangements with the crown and create our own new arrangements because we feel like it and we just kind of reached that stage in our development and that's what we we think we just like to do that now that that's uh, that, that that is very problematic right i mean obviously it's not tyrannicide because they're not killing george the third but i mean the idea that you can just decide to overthrow the civil power is is completely false and contrary to catholic doctrine and also the claim that, that no taxation without representation is a principle of natural law, which it certainly isn't, right? It, is a, it, um, it, it, it can be uh, argued that it's a principle of English public law, and, uh, and it can be argued that it's a very good principle of English public law, but nevertheless it's a, it's an, it's a principle of human law, of the public law of, of England. It's not, a, it's not a principle of natural law. So... So, and that's completely obvious because when St. Paul says the powers that be are ordained of God, uh, you know, he, he's living under Nero, right? So, so, so Nero, it, it, last time I checked, was a tyrant. Um, and uh, he certainly didn't agree with the principle no taxation without representation. <laughs> um, so the, uh, and St. Paul specifically says that you have to pay your taxes. So, um, so uh, I think there's this tension because because you can give a completely legitimate account of what the um, American 
counter revolutionaries are up to. Um, uh, but then that account is not, in my view, really reconcilable with what Jefferson says they're up to in the Declaration of Independence. So, so, so I think the reason, the fact that the original quarrel is phrased in completely legitimate natural law terms, independently of whether or not the, it corresponds to the facts, the argument in itself is legitimate that 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 states can't act lawlessly this state is acting lawlessly we've objected they've declared war on us therefore we can we can we can become independent uh, that is a p- completely legitimate line of argument but then then it's 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 made to hang on an illegitimate enlightenment set of assumptions and arguments which are unfortunately there in the US declaration of independence um so i think it's quite important to distinguish between um the U.S. Constitution, which is, uh, I mean, prescinding from questions about slavery and stuff, is is some um, is an inoffensive and rather well crafted document, um, and the original argument of the colonists against that the, the incredibly small taxes they were being asked to pay, um, uh, and uh, um, uh, um, which which was perfectly legitimate in the way it was phrased, and the the Declaration of Independence. Which, which I think, on any really honest reading, is clearly based on false enlightenment principles. Unfortunately, <laughs> which, which some of the taxes door. the king recanted on. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that. That's the doorbell of, of my my in-laws house, which is which plays the U.S. national anthem. <laughs> but the, uh, um, but uh, yeah, so the um, yeah, um, so 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 uh, yeah, I think. As I say, I don't. I don't want to, and I, I wouldn't. I didn't claim any great uh, divine authority, obviously, to pronounce on the rights and wrongs of the actual quarrel. Um, but the way in which the the terms of the quarrel were were phrased uh, originally was was legitimate. Um, but the um, but the I think the way that it got kind of hijacked somewhat by the Enlightenment through the offices of Mr. Jefferson. I think that's rather unfortunate. But I think the, the legitimacy of the phrasing of the original quarrel and the sanity of the US Constitution as a text um, has been this great source of stability in US history. Um, and uh, and the, the dodgy Enlightenment principles, uh, which in fact the, the Declaration of Independence has been a great source of instability and overreaching government and, um, and, and, and other problems in US history. But I mean, if you want to see what happens, if you only have the Enlightenment principles, then just look at French history. Um, Final questions. Uh, what are some practical ways to, I don't say fix it all, but uh, like Charles and I will talk about localism. Worry about getting Christ the King in your own city, town, neighborhood, eventually states. Uh, if you want to try to convert the nation, we got more people doing that in more cities, more states, then eventually you'll get to a, an entire country or union, etc. What are some practical ways to, you know, get back on the right paths per se? Well, that's a question for the lay arms. So I hand that over to Adam again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. my, my job of the, the job of the clergy is to uh, to preach and to um, confect the sacraments, uh, to offer mass. Um, do we quote in the book uh, one of our lords? Uh, Briefer parables, which I, I always find very um, encouraging, which is about the um, 
the man who throws the seed into the earth. Uh, and um, it, uh, and uh, it, it says, of itself, the earth brings forth fruit, first the, um, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So it's that phrase, of, the, of itself, the earth brings forth fruit. So as often in the scriptures, we can see here the earth as a, as a symbol for the church. So of herself, the church brings forth fruit. So when everybody uh, in the church is doing what they should in their particular place, both clergy and laity, then things inevitably get better. And people get holier and laws get saner and more virtuous people come to office. Uh, and so that's my very general answer. But maybe, uh, as I say, the, the technical uh, question of, of conforming the, the lay or the temporal order to to Christ is is a matter for for the laity. Is this part of the two swords idea you guys are talking about? <laughs> um, so uh, so I, I hand you over to my secular arm. Yes, I mean I, I think uh, if you look at I mean the church was established on earth as the mystical body of Christ, who is the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king, who teaches and sanctifies and governs. And uh, uh, as long as the clergy teach and sanctify and govern, and the, um, the laity are taught, sanctified, and governed, um, uh, then, the, um, then uh, the mystical body makes progress in the, in the world. And yeah so so i mean i think if if you uh we at one point we i can't we quote or just cite uh, there's this uh, passage from to tocqueville uh who is not in general a pious catholic but uh in but he he observes that that um that the uh the the leveling and the spirit of equality um in in democratic times when he's analyzing the united states tends to lead to a, a, a restlessness against any authority um, uh, which tends to um, uh, tends to drive men uh, away from all forms of authority and ultimately cause them to become irreligious he says but if they do accept an authority uh, they want it to be a clear unified authority that makes sense and consequently the tendency will be to become Catholics or atheists in a constitution such as the United States. And that was ticking along nicely until the 1960s. I mean, <laughs> um, although you've got to factor into that the fact that people, um, uh, that, that, that Protestantism, as it were, all false religions are generated by the devil in order to stop people becoming Catholics. Uh, and the better the Catholic Church is doing, the more the devil has to up his game and through gritted teeth um, uh, allow uh, his fake versions of Christianity to be closer approximations of the real deal uh, because the people he's trying to deceive are better informed and will notice uh, flaws in the argument. Um, so so, so until we dropped the ball, Protestantism was was playing a much better game because they, they needed to, they needed to play a much better game. I don't know, of course, many of them were acting good faith, but I mean, I mean, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the the malign purposes for which false versions of Christianity exist in history are such that they, that Protestantism needed to be a close approximation of Catholicism when Catholicism was 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 um, achieving uh, its goals more um, more successfully. And uh, if you look at both Britain and the United States, um, the rate of conversion was incredibly high. 
and the rate of lapsation was incredibly low, and um, and uh, it was it was uh, statistically and sociologically more than conceivable that both the UK and the USA would have been Catholic polities by now, um, if uh, if we hadn't, as it were, dropped the ball. And I always think it's a little bit like um, an army that thinks it's won a battle because it's done, it's doing really well, and it then breaks formation and just incoherently charges the retreating enemy uh, and the enemy notices that it's broken formation turns around and guns them all down uh, and i think that's a little bit what happened in the 60s i'm afraid um uh, that, that we that, that as p- particularly in the us and i think the 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 the, the miss the the absence of that wo- word one in the irish constitution uh, had a, a big influence because had Ireland not left out the word one, that would have influenced lots of Catholics in the US to feel a certain confidence about Republican integralism. Um, uh, and because it did leave out that word, it, 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 I think it, it had a much wider, that failure had a much wider impact than just Ireland. I think it affected the US and thereby the rest of the English-speaking world. And the English-speaking world in general was in quite a good place in terms of the church um, uh, in uh, up to the time of, of the council, and I think because of that lack of confidence about integralism, we we weren't we weren't ready to deal with a lot of the pathologies which were present in the church in France and Belgium and and, and the Netherlands and Germany, um, which came up at the time of the council. I think if the English speaking world had been more confident about integralism, it might have been able to prevent the Rhine group doing the stuff that it did at the Second Vatican Council. So, so that that missing one from the, from the uh, in many ways, splendid Irish constitution really did have a, a big impact. So, so and, and, but one of the things de Tocqueville says is that the Catholics, uh, he's talking about, you know, the, the mid-19th century, the Catholics are not, uh, they flourish under these circumstances where, where the logic of the civil order drives things towards irreligion or Catholicism. Um, but they flourish because they don't approve of irreligion and, and civil neutrality. They think that ultimately there should be uh, a truly Catholic state. And, and that's why they're, they're, they're attractive and coherent and unified and, and, they, and, and they're winning over their countrymen in, in large numbers. And I think when, so when, when uh, and there was this big argument in, in the US in the 50s between Monsignor Fenton and uh, Father John Courtney Murray, Father John Courtney Murray, who was trying to um, uh, infect Catholic doctrine with uh, classical liberalism, um, and Monsignor Fenton, who was defending Leo the uh, teaching in Longiqua, uh, where he says, uh, where he he talks about the fact that the U.S. Constitution is very sensible, but it still ought to be uh, ultimately uh, a Catholic constitution one day um and and fenton was defending that principle and and courtney murray was was attacking it and um the events of the council were perceived as a victory for courtney murray um albeit that's not that's not straightforwardly what happened but certainly what was perceived as happening um and um and 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 that i think that gave a fatal blow to the strength of the church in the united states and the strength of the church in the english-speaking world so i think you know the 50s should not be idealized and uh, the, there must have been all sorts of problems all the 60s wouldn't have happened but but i think it's still true that um still true that that, that we weren't so very far 
from achieving integralism in the English-speaking world um, uh, if if we hadn't if if we hadn't suddenly lost hold of that ideal and and with it uh, many of the other forces which were leading to the prosperity of the church uh, in that order. So I don't think we need to, in that sense, we don't need to be. There isn't some special formula. There isn't some special organization which we need to found. And if only we get the logo just right, um, uh, then, uh, then 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 suddenly the kingship of Christ will be established. Good, it's all good, good, being... good coffee mugs out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with good logos, but but the, but um, but the uh, in the end, it's 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 not rocket science. You know, you you, you do what it says on the tin. You know, you 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 um you believe all of the catholic faith um and and you preach it without fear or favor and you 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 conform to the to the law of christ and of his church and you frequent the sacraments in a state of grace and 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 of, and as father thomas says uh and you know you don't vote for the dodgy politicians and the bishops excommunicate the dodgy politicians who claim to be Catholics that would be very helpful and uh, and the um, and then and then eventually the kingship of Christ will start to realize itself as was 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 happening simple simple things that correct a big problem yes I suppose you could summarize all that by saying making the same point that Alan made about Ireland you have to put the spiritual before the temporal if you put the temporal before the spiritual then it's not going to work you lose both. Be the summary of the whole project. Yeah, easy. Again, easy, easy. <laughs> but <laughs> well, Father, Doctor, appreciate y'all's time. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. much. No problem. The link will be underneath uh, in the show notes section, directly underneath the video. Buy the book. Buy two. Give it to a friend of yours. <laughs> Hand it to a politician. Uh, I I've given Christ the little booklet by Michael Davies, Kingship of Christ the King. Uh, I handed it to Ted Cruz. Was it eight years ago? I think it was. He was. He came by town. I go, hey, you might want to check that out. I, yeah. I did duct tape a miraculous medal in there too. He's not Catholic, so. Or else hand it to a bishop. Give it to a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good idea. All right, well, Father, Doctor, appreciate your times again. Thank you very much. Thank you. God bless.